Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it is really a great pleasure for me to welcome all of you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I want to make sure that uh, those of you who haven't already seen our exhibition, World War II in New York City, uh, come back during regular museum hours to see it. It's a wonderful, wonderful show. It'll be up for another, um, up through uh, um, third, let's say the third week of May. So um, you have some time. And also, of course, we just opened our uh, Audubon exhibit, which will only be up for a couple of months, and um, a terrific display upstairs on our second floor. I also want to uh, make sure that you're aware of our Friday night uh, Pay As You Wish and Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series and uh, our newly inaugurated uh, jazz concert series on Friday nights um, organized by my great colleague Dale Gregory, our vice president for public programs. And finally... I want to make sure that everyone here is a member of the New York Historical Society. If you are not already, uh, my colleagues um, just out the door will be very happy to sign you up. And uh, of course, we count on our members to support the wonderful programs that we do. Tonight's program, my share of the task, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I also want to recognize some very special people here among us this evening, three members of our board of trustees. I'd like to thank them for all of their hard work, wonderful work, generosity, effort on behalf of this great institution. Judy Berkowitz, Susan Danilo, and Glenn Louie, thanks so much to the three of you. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask audience members to line up behind the standing microphones that will be positioned to my left and to my right. We ask you to do this so that the speakers on the stage can hear your questions and so that other members of the audience can hear your questions as well. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speakers, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. Now then, Stanley A. McChrystal is a retired four-star army general and the author of the new memoir, My Share of the Task. His last assignment was as the commander of the International Security Assistance Force and as the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. He is a former director of the Joint Staff and former commander of the Joint Special Operations Counterterrorism Task Force. Following his retirement in August 2010, General McChrystal joined Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs as a senior lecturer. And in January 2011, he co-founded the McChrystal Group. We are also very pleased indeed to welcome Walter Russell Mead, the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College, and editor-at-large of the American Interest. He is a former senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of the award-winning book, Special Providence, American Foreign Policy and How It Changed the World. His most recent book is God and Gold, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. Roger Berkowitz is the academic director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College, where he is associate professor of politics, philosophy, and human rights. 
He's the author of The Gift of Science, Leibniz, and the Modern Legal Tradition, and editor of several books, including The Intellectual Origins of the Global Financial Crisis and Revenge and Justice. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask you that you please make sure that anything like a cell phone that makes noise is switched off. And now it is my pleasure to invite our guests to the stage. Thank you. So welcome, and I'd like to thank General McChrystal for joining us. Um, so General, in, in your book, My Share of the Task, um, you talk a lot about leadership. Uh, you begin with leadership. Uh, you say that from, from your youth, really, you knew that leadership was what you wanted to accomplish. And in the end, your epilogue is about leadership, and the book is in many ways uh, an example of leadership. You're teaching now leadership. Can you just tell us a little bit what you mean? I know it's hard to define. You say you can't define it, but what's an example? What do you mean by leadership, and why is it so important to you? Sure, I, I think Louise just showed us an example of leadership. She got up here uh, and she got people in a room and asked you to join the society, which I assume involves some kind of dues. And, <laughs> and she did that in a positive way and made you want to do that. In my world, we would have locked the door and had me start talking. <laughs> and when you got so sick of it, you were willing to buy your way out, then. Uh, no, I think leadership ultimately is about responsibility. And it's not just responsibility for a big cause or a mission, the, the creation of an organization or a nation or even an army. It's really about your responsibility for people. And it's as simple as I, I think if you sign somebody's paycheck or if you're responsible for the health care their family has or the education of a child or anything, you're a leader. Whether you want to be or not, you're a leader. And so I think to me leadership is just the acceptance of responsibility. And in your book, you, you, you talk a lot about um, Admiral Nelson uh, from the Battle of Trafalgar. We were just talking about this a second ago. And you, you really hold him up as, as, as your example uh, of a leader that you, I guess you told me just now, you refound him in around 2005. Right. And, um, and one of the things you took from him was this idea of, of battleship entre entrepreneurship. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and how that relates to, to, to your leadership style Absolutely. in Iraq. I'd been brought up, my mother was really into history, into the Greek, Roman mythology and whatnot, so I grew up on the Scottish chiefs and King Arthur and then, of course, the, the Greek and Roman leaders. And I always admired Admiral Nelson, and he's sort of stereotypically quite a hero. He'd lost an eye, he'd lost an arm, and he had spent most of his life at sea, and he'd really been highly regarded, although he was a stern leader mm -hmm. during the, the sailing back from the great victory at Trafalgar. He had more sailors flogged during that period, what should have been the victory lap, than in any other period, simply because he thought discipline was important. But the thing that fascinated me is I studied it more recently, and he became from stereotypical to real for me, is his style. The French and Spanish fleet typically took people of a higher caste of, of society and made them ship's captains. And they came in to be a captain. It's like joining the army and they make you a general. That'd be great, but it, it wouldn't be very good to build your uh, skills. In the British Navy, it was middle-class guys. And they came in at a very young age, and they had to work themselves up through every skill on a ship, and they had to master it. And then when they got senior enough to be a captain, they were still a middle-class person. And the way they made their retirement was success in combat, because they got a percentage of the prize money. 
And it wasn't like being a privateer. I mean, they were very uh, patriotic, but that was sort of the system. So it was this meritocracy. If you were a good captain, your crew was well taken care of because they split the prize money. So you had a great reason to want to do that. Plus, you had a great reason to be competent. And then he created this, this uh, fleet of very competent captains, and he built their confidence and their competence so that they were entrepreneurs. And the night before the Battle of Trafalgar, actually it was a week or so before, but he sent this message out that's very famous, and it says, uh, in the coming battle, no captain can do very wrong if he brings his ship alongside that of the enemy. And what he's basically saying is this is going to be confusing. I'm not going to micromanage this fight. I, I never can. It's the nature of that kind of battle. You get up close and do what I know you're good at, and we'll be fine. And so instead of trying to micromanage, he did the opposite. He created a culture and an environment, and then he put them out there to be successful. And, of course, at the Battle of Trafalgar, he was hit at the very beginning of the battle with a musket round, and he died two hours and 15 minutes later did nothing in the execution of the battle, but I would argue it's his greatest victory. Right. And, and, and in Iraq, you really took that to heart. You, 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 as you taught him, just what you said in the book, you, you really trained up captains and other and lieutenants and let them have an enormous amount of authority. You talk about pushing authority down, saying don't do anything immoral, but let's win, something along those lines. I mean, how, how effective is that? How dangerous is that? Um, and, and we were just talking just a second ago um, you know, I recently gave a talk at West Point, I was telling you, and, and the cadets, and I said, you know, I was arguing against just war theory and saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't justify more. Maybe we should make people who are going to fight, you know, fight, and if, it's, if they succeed and if they do it right, we say good, and if they make a mistake, we punish them for it. And the cadets were really upset because <laughs> they're like, well, we want to know, we want people to tell us what we can do, what we can't do. And your leadership style is very different from that. Yeah. I'm just wondering how that how that works? Do you find resistance in the military at West Point? How that, where, is, where is that going? There are really two parts to it, and I'll take the first part, and that is Admiral Nelson had a fleet that mostly operated dispersed, and they had to, he had to give them intent orders, and then they'd do it. When they got into time for a, a battle like Trafalgar, you, you formed ships of the line, and there was a great temptation to want to micromanage it, but you really didn't have ability to do it very well. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we had communication down to everybody in our force all the time. I could watch every one of our fights as it was happening by a predator watching full motion video, and we could go through and we could be on the radio frequency all the way down to squad or assault team level. So it really meant that in my headquarters in Iraq, I could watch fights in Afghanistan where I also had part of my force, and while they're executing, I could see what they're doing and I could talk to them and talk to them. And so there's a great temptation to say, well, I know a lot, so I'm going to pull the things. But I didn't do that because I found even though you can see and you can hear, you don't really know. It's like looking out the window across the street and you see two people in a heated argument and you say, well, I know what's going on. No, you don't. <laughs> You're not there. You don't know the background. You don't know the feel. You don't know the smell of it. You don't know how tired the soldiers are. You don't know anything. You've got to let them do it. But what you can do is you can help empower them with context. So what we did was, my role was to push as much information down of what we're trying to do, what the context is, what's the supporting information so they can make better decisions than they ever could before because they had more information to do that with. And that's the entrepreneur part. And then I kept a constant pressure on their back saying, this is what we have to do to win and this is what you have to do. And you, you do it the way you want. I support you. 
I never decided what target they hit or what they did, but I said, we're not negotiating whether we're going to win, we're going to win. The second part of it, though, is, is even harder because how people should fight. There is a natural desire in a military force, and I think in other forces as well, to reduce risk. You reduce risk of failure. You ask why armies, why generals want big armies, because they don't want to fail. It's not for themselves, it's for the nation. You ask why the Navy, Air Force, and Marines that come in every year with a desire for a bigger budget, it's because they don't want to have the nation look to them and them say, we can't do what you ask. So to mitigate that risk, they ask for pants with belt and suspenders and then a backup belt. It's natural. Um, in combat, people do the same. You want to be sure. And another way to reduce risk is make sure you're doing what you've been asked to do and you've got authority to do it. The problem is if you, if you run into commanders and soldiers who look for permission to do everything, they're not very helpful because they can't make their own decisions. They can't make value judgments, which they have to do in split second. And so what a very difficult situation, the force I had, which was the, the most elite force in the military special operations, these guys were specially selected and honed and we're in a meeting. We had authorities that other forces didn't have. And if we went on a firefight, and we fought on the firefight, and then some of the enemy ran away during that fight. Other forces, and typically you're not allowed to uh, engage those forces, and it makes sense. In our force, because of the nature of the targets we went after, the, the assessment was said, if they're running away, but they're a senior bad guy, it's so important to take them out of the fight that you can shoot them. And so I'm in a meeting with my guys, and they said, can we, can we shoot squirters? And I said, well, you can't ask me that because I can't give you an answer. That's why we have you. We have given you more judgment than anyone else because there's no way for me to cookie cutter, from, cutter it from afar. You have to make a decision whether you think operationally you can do it, and that's usually the easy one, legally and morally whether you should do it. It's just too gray to try to say you can do this or not do that. And it, it's a difficult position for soldiers because particularly in a war like counterinsurgency, it's, uh, it's always gray. I go back to, how many people in this room saw the movie Saving Private Ryan about a decade ago? Remember that? You remember right near the end of the movie, something happens. There's, uh, there's a big fight and the Americans are relieved and there's a series of Germans who are captured. And there's one German who's captured, who had been captured earlier in the movie and he's recaptured, and he's in this line, and there's this timid interpreter standing there who had been involved with the guy before, and what's the interpreter do? He shoots the guy. Now, I was in the theater, and the people basically cheered. Now, did the German deserve it? You know, hard to say. Wasn't a good guy. He'd done, you know, questionable things. We now had a young American soldier execute a prisoner and people in the theater kind of went, all right, had it coming. We've seen that in movies like Dirty Harry. I mean, we all sort of go, hey, the bad guy got it. But those are those things. It's, it's really hard to say black and white. You don't, you don't execute prisoners. You don't do it. Not that it's never happened, but you just don't do it. It's really hard. But if you go back to, for those of you who are like Texas history, after the Battle of the Alamo, of course, there was the Battle of San Jacinto where uh, Sam Houston's army successfully defeats Santa Ana. They break the Mexican line. 
and they basically get dominance very quickly. And then the Mexicans start to run, and they go into this swamp behind their lines, and they try to get away, and the Texans massacre hundreds of them who've thrown down their rifles and trying to get away. But yet that's viewed as a big victory. Or General Pershing, still a big hero in the Philippine insurrection in 1900, he buried some of his Muslim guerrilla enemies in pig's carcasses because he knew how upsetting that would be. Or Bull Halsey in World War II. He put a big banner at the entrance to one of the South Pacific uh, mooring areas for ships that they all passed and it said, kill Japs, kill Japs, kill more Japs. Go into the World War II thing here. That's what war is. War's really hard and it requires people to get down into their own ethics deeper than seems like it from afar. But that's what makes it hard and that's why you can't tell people what they can and can't do. You can give them law, you can give them general guidelines, you can maintain discipline, but at the end of the day, the way people operate, you have got to try to build and reinforce values. Okay, great. This is sort of making me think there's a kind of a Philip II style of management, which is to try to give everybody ever more detailed written instructions to cover every possible contingency, with the idea that there's nothing they'll ever come up with that isn't in the manual somewhere. Seems to me that our society as a whole is getting more and more like that um, uh, by the rule. How do you, when you're working with these young people and, and leaders who you're sending out into the field, how do you make sure that, or you can't make sure, but how do you work to see that when they make those kinds of decisions, the right kind of person is bringing the right stuff to that decision? Yeah, it's, uh, if you think about it, the reaction to a problem is typically to, to pull in controls. And, you know, Philip II is really not an aberration. He, there are a lot of Philip IIs out there. When I was a lieutenant, we was the 1970s, and the Army was not in very good shape. And we didn't have much money, and our vehicles weren't in good shape. And so the division commander and the corps commander who ran the, the military installation I was on uh, set up these checkpoints. And military vehicles that drove by the checkpoints would be randomly stopped and checked for maintenance. They'd be inspected, and if the vehicle didn't have good maintenance, a very ugly report would go up the chain of command and then down to the battalion commander who'd be basically excoriated for having a bad maintenance program. And so the battalion commanders were in terror of this. And my battalion commander, who was Philip II's <laughs> descendant, <laughs> he came up with the idea, here's what we're going to do. We had about I don't know, a couple hundred vehicles in this 600-man battalion. He said the only way you can get a vehicle and use a vehicle out of the motor pool is to get the number two guy in the battalion to personally sign off on your request. <laughs> and he was hard to find. And of course, you know, <laughs> Sergeant so-and-so isn't going to go up there. He's the Lieutenant so-and-so isn't. So what happened is people stopped asking. They just used their own privately owned vehicle and they did the, the military business in that because it was easier than getting in the argument. Well, the battalion commander gets fewer and fewer bad inspection reports. So he says, I have solved the problem. <laughs> well, I guess in one sense, he solved his problem because he didn't get ugly reports. We had absolutely terrible maintenance, and everyone in the battalion was further disconnected from what leadership is. And, and that's the danger. People write, if you hold people accountable for everything that goes wrong in a sense that's that's uh, punishment-like, mm. nobody's going to accept any risk. 
Somebody has to be able to make a mistake and fail, and you go, hey, you didn't get it completely right, but you're trying, and there wasn't an ethics thing here. Okay, go on forth. But if people are punished, or even in, in small ways, then they shape their behavior. And very quickly, you, you don't see it, but you get a very terrible response. One of the things I really liked about your book was that in all the talk we hear about the war in Afghanistan, we've heard for all these years, you almost never hear coming out of anybody in Washington in any way, here is our plan, this is why we think it will work. And I don't know if the plan is working or if, if the plan you, you work, talked about in Afghanistan is still the plan. That's, I think, the low level of strategic discussion we're having in this country. But I, I thought, reading that, I thought, okay, I can actually conceptualize how somebody would look at the war in Afghanistan as a thing rather than just this series of disconnected events and violence and think that there was something that we could do that would make a difference there. Is that working? Uh, part of it is and part of it isn't. Um, basically, in I had been in in Afghanistan for every year. I first went in 2002, and then my special operations force had part of our forces. So I'd been there a lot, but I didn't take command until the summer of 2009. So what Walter refers to is, first thing we did was do an assessment of the situation and a recommendation on what we needed to do going forward, which included changing our strategy. And then if they changed our strategy, I said, this is what it's going to take in terms of money, time, forces, and all to do that. And it was built on uh, the fact that the situation was in the summer of 2009, it was bad and getting much worse. And people were losing faith. The West was losing faith, the, the 46 nations that were in the coalition, uh, and the Afghans were losing faith and confidence. They were starting to believe that the difference between what they'd expected, which was probably unrealistic after 9-11, what they'd expected and what they'd seen had been so great. Partly our fault, partly their fault, partly it's just hard, but it's a reality. So they were starting to become doomsday. Uh, believers. This is all going to go bad, and so we've got to act in a way that, that just takes care of our, our personal and, and close organizations. So what we had to do is build up their confidence. We had to convince them we were their partners and we were going to stay. We had to convince them we could create more security than they had. We had to convince them we were going to protect them and not kill them in the process, because nobody wants to be liberated and killed in that liberation process. Doesn't have the same satisfaction. <laughs> um, and so we had to do a number of these things all at a time when America and the West was really tired of this. And so we were really trying to change people's attitudes about a war in a major way at a very difficult time. In many ways, it has worked. And you know, I stay close to people there. Security is much better than it was. You, you see events, a bomb in Kabul yesterday and whatnot. But really, statistically and realistically, security is much better. The Afghan forces are much bigger and much better. The problem is the confidence that we were hoping to increase so much is still very weak. Confidence in their own government, the government of Afghanistan, is very weak. And, and for many reasons, it's, it should be weak. They have not pulled together at the local or at the national level like they need to. So even if you get great security, even if that part succeeds, the whole endeavor, and I said the whole endeavor is one, uh, is always in danger. So it's still in danger. Uh, the thing about it is almost none of the players are benefited by a failure in this effort. Pakistan ends up in a much worse strategic position. Of course, Afghanistan, the current government and all, ends up in a much worse position. Even the Taliban, interestingly enough, a Taliban victory would not produce what they want. 
it, they would not take the whole country. They don't have the power to, to take the Northern Alliance for their Tajiks and Hazars and Uzbeks. They don't, so it, you'd have a kind of a grinding civil war and a really lousy governance like they did before. So nobody wins, but yet nobody, they haven't been able to pull it together. So there's still a lot to be done and it still needs to be focused at people's confidence. The other sort of black hole in that war has always looked to be Pakistan and the attitude of Pakistan. I find it fascinating that almost none of the documents captured with Osama bin Laden have been declassified and released. It suggests there must be some really interesting stuff in there, possibly explosive stuff that might include his correspondence with people, oh, I don't know, connected to the government of Pakistan in some way. Um, how do you fight, how do you deal with an ally that is part ally, part maybe your bitterest enemy? How do you do that? How do you think about that? First, uh, you know, I went to West Point and uh, Osama bin Laden was basically killed about 700 yards from the gate of Pakistan's West Point. And I know the stuff that goes on 700 yards from West Point, so I find it entirely believable. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the first thing you have to understand is people keep saying, is Pakistan our ally or aren't they? Whose side is Pakistan on? And that's simple. Pakistan is on Pakistan's side, and they ought to be. And if you go back to Pakistan's history, uh, it makes ours look like one with absolutely no friction whatsoever. Formed in 1947, a million and a half people died just sorting the place out. They've had three wars. They uh, have lost them all. They've had 50% of their history has been with a military government, 50% with uh, an elected civilian government. Both periods, at the end of each period, they're happy to go back to the other one, or at least one group is happy to. So it's been really, really difficult. They've had a very difficult relationship with America. If you were to put on a Pakistani set of eyes and look at America's relationship, they were our Cold War enemies, I mean friends. When India was viewed as a non-aligned nation tilting toward the Soviet Union, uh, they helped Henry Kissinger get into China in preparation for Richard Nixon's trip. They allowed us to funnel weapons and money to the Mujahideen inside Afghanistan at at significant risk to them. Uh, they, when they got a nuclear weapon in 1989, we implemented the Pressler Amendment, and yet when India had gotten one in 1974, we said, well, that's no problem. And Pakistan has thought they are our ally this whole time. So Pakistan views us as an absolutely conflicted partner, meaning we just, I think inside they'd say we hate them, and we just turn and, and deal with them when we have to. It makes them very insecure. There is almost a national uh, insecurity complex. And when we go over and make demands, you know, from fairly early after 9-11, I was involved heavily, uh, you'd go over and say, okay, we got to deal with the number one problem here, Al-Qaeda. And they would pull out a list and they'd go, we have a list of problems and Al-Qaeda doesn't even make the top 10. Electricity, water, you know, our economic, all these kind of things. And, and they got a good point. Of course, India is right up there. So we say that they're paranoid. We say that they're uh, 
not to be trusted, etc. But they are maneuvering in an area in which they think they've got very few cards to play, very weak in terms of natural resources. They've got two insurgencies going on at once now in Baluchistan and in Waziristan. They've got all of these problems, and they don't see us as a reliable ally. They think as soon as we get what we need, we'll cut them free and, and walk away. And there's some history to say that. Now, I'm not an apologist for Pakistan, but what I'd say is we have to understand that Pakistan has a view of the world that is Pakistan's, and it's very much impacted by what, uh, what they've experienced. Uh, I used to sit down for hours and hours with General Kiani, the chief of the army, and, and an honorable, smart guy. And, uh, and I trusted him. I mean, I knew that he was doing things that I wish he wasn't doing, and vice versa, I'm sure. But he won, I, I am convinced he wanted us to succeed, America to succeed in Afghanistan, but he wasn't convinced we were going to. He wasn't convinced we were committed enough. And I laid out my whole strategy. We were just one-on-one, -on -one, and I'm in his office. I laid out my whole strategy. I said, what do you think? He says, Stan, you got the right strategy. You just don't have enough time to implement it. You don't have the political support. It's going to take more time than you got. Um, whether that's right or not, it was very thoughtful. And, and so I think we have to look at Pakistan that way. We can't write them off. We can't cut off relations. You know, they're a reality. And so I think that as frustrating as they are, we have got to build, continue to build a working relationship. But it's not just giving them money. Because when you give people money, the first person they hate is you. I mean, it's true. And so uh, I think we've got to build a relationship that's built on convincing them that we have their strategic interests in our psyche, not always aligned, but in our psyche. We were actually going to present you with a very large check at the end of this program, but I've just <laughs> changed my mind, realized that's the wrong way to go. I'm, um, a, I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> um, looking to the future, you know, um, how much of, America, of an American interest is there in Afghanistan and Pakistan? Good or bad, how much does it really matter to us what happens there? Yeah, I, I admit that I'm biased, so you can write off a certain amount of what I say here. Um, I think it matters a lot. You know, Afghan used to be a place that was a long way away. It was a landlocked country. We didn't get anything from Afghanistan that we had to have. We couldn't get from elsewhere. It didn't, it wasn't on the route to anything because we don't use a Silk Road now and that sort of thing. So it was sort of out there and didn't matter. Uh, and I think after the Soviets were forced out and the Afghans forced the Soviets out, it said, well, that part of the Cold War is over, so it doesn't matter. We can go back to it not mattering. I think it does now. I don't think there's anywhere far enough away that doesn't matter now. And I think that, so Afghanistan is part of that region, and you have to think regionally. We know Pakistan matters. If Pakistan were to lose stability, 180 million people with nuclear weapons and a lot of other issues, there's no way it wouldn't affect the region in a way that would affect us hugely, maybe not initially, but indirectly. And that's true of the world, not just the US. So I think it does matter. Um, I think it matters from the standpoint of regional stability. The region is real big. I also think there is a moral connection People used to talk to me, well, we went to Afghanistan to help the Afghans, and I'd go, whoa, boy. In 2001, we didn't go to Afghanistan to help the Afghans. They didn't ask us to come. We went because the World Trade Towers went down, and we wanted to get at Al-Qaeda. And whether Afghanistan, the government of Afghanistan, we asked them, do you want us to come and get rid of Al-Qaeda? It's the Taliban government. They said, no, thank you. 
we overthrew it. So if you think about it, we showed up there. We changed things. There were a lot of Afghans very happy about it. Don't get me wrong. But we didn't do it for them. We did it for us. If we wanted to do it for them, we'd have done it a decade earlier. But we didn't. So I think we have some moral requirement. Now, that's not a blank check forever. And I don't think we can leave thousands of American forces there because it's the, the antibodies. They don't want a lot of foreigners there. Mm -hmm. What they want is American business. I, I talked to President Karzai one day, and I said, what do you want? How many troops do you want? How many Americans do you want here? He says, I want American businesses. Because if you're here and if you're making a profit, then you will have a reason to want Afghanistan to be stable. It's an interesting point. I think it's very true. So I always think that that, that interconnection is, would be very valuable. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're not going to get that without security, and you're not going to get security without... That's the problem. In it. All right, well, just one more question on this depressing range of subjects, Stan. Um, what about Iraq now? We quote one. Uh, it's, as uh, far as I can tell, the Iranians are flying planes to Syria through Iraqi airspace with their blessing. Do we care? Should we care? The violence rate is going up. If the Syria thing ends, it looks to me like the Sunnis will really relaunch in a big way, some kind of attack. Yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, whether you think we should have gone into Iraq in 2003 or not, that's a reality. You can't change that now. We, we were there. I think our departure from Iraq probably didn't posture us as well as we could. I think we didn't get as much influence in the region from that as we had paid for, as we had earned. And I think that may be something we regret. I don't think of Iraq as a place anymore. I think of Iraq as a keystone in a region that is roiling right now. I, Walter and I were talking before this. I think the Mideast particularly is going to change more in the next 10 to 20 years than it has in the last 60 years. It's really the last time it's going to change as much as it is, I think, about to was right after World War I, when people like Gertrude Bell got on the map and drew Iraq and then figured out who'd run it. Um, I think those kinds of changes are right in the future here. Because if you go around the region, you have several major things happening. One, you have the changing value of energy. It's likely that with energy discoveries around the world, fracking and whatnot, that they won't be quite so central as they have been. And that, that doesn't just change economics, that changes political willingness for people to be engaged. The second is the, the Sunni-Shia divide. It's much greater than we think here in uh, America. It is a real fault line, and it is going to have tectonic bumps. And you can draw a line from Egypt through uh, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, all the way down into Saudi Arabia, which is 15% Shia. And you can predict that there's going to be heat and light along that, and it's going to be interesting. Iraq, of course, is going to be, because it's a keystone in that, it's likely to be a battleground again. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood that we saw uh, take power in Egypt is also going to be a factor in other places. They could put, from what I'm reading, they could go out and put countless people, probably 500,000 people in the streets of Amman pretty easily right now. And countries like Jordan would have a very difficult time dealing with that. So I think you're going to have a series of these forces all bumping together. And so I think it's unlikely that you know, we really had, from 1967 on, we had an, a period of incredible stability in the region. We don't mm -hmm. think of it, but we did. 
we had this sort of containment and stability, and we had autocratic leaders we didn't like, but we benefited from. And, and we were always having to look at it, but things always sort of worked, and the lines on the map stayed where they were, and I don't think that's true anymore. I think that's over the next 10 to 20 years, I think much of that changes. Just full of good news, aren't you? <laughs> Roger, what's the... Um, I want to come back a little bit to the leadership, and, and, and one of the things that there's a, there's a subplot, if not maybe another plot of your book, which is the transformation of the American military. Renaissance, transformation, however we want to call it. And, and one of the, I mean, you're a main player in that, but one of the other main players is technology. Um, I mean, one of the really exciting things about reading your book, unexpected at least from my point of view, was, was how interested in technology you are and how much it really, in your mind, changed the way we fight. You call it the networked war. Um, you know, there were a number of things that that brought up. One is we had to sort of become more like Al-Qaeda in order to fight Al-Qaeda, which is an interesting, interesting thought. Um, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, I, I study Hannah Arendt a lot. She makes a distinction that probably many of us aren't aware of between violence and power. And she says power is what people get from working together, um, coordination. Violence is out of a machine gun. Um, and she says that in the end, you know, power will trump violence, but in any particular battle, violence will beat power. And the reason, but she says that could end, that power in the end will win out only when we have machine robots um, who, who will never, who in a sense won't stop, won't ever worry about too much bloodshed, won't worry about you know, um, too much surveillance, won't worry about know too much about people. And the, you know, okay, there's limits in what you were doing, but one sees the future of the American military more and more governed by 24-hour surveillance all over the place. That could be directed in Iraq, and there's worries now. We just had a, a, a filibuster the other day about whether it might be directed here. But not Starbucks. I but not Starbucks. not Starbucks. Not <laughs> so happening. I'm just wondering how, where you, how you see drones. Yeah. Now, every, everyone today is worried about drones as an offensive weapon, but what I thought was really smart about your book is we almost, I don't think you ever talk, rarely talk about drones as an offensive weapon. It's much more of a surveillance technology. We're talking about a world in which surveillance is going to become almost omnipresent, if it hasn't already. And, and whose hands that's in. And I'm wondering how the military relates to that and, and, and how you see that changing the way we fight and live. Absolutely. You can go back through military history as far as you want, but if you go back to Napoleon, and that was the rise of the massed armies, and that was the first period in which we could resupply armies as, and equip them as big as Napoleon did and then use them. So power came from a disciplined, big force with the best technology of the day. Then you get to the US Civil War and World War I where technology went even faster. You still had the size and the use of technology being very, very important. How much punch could you get? Sort of mass times velocity. Um, where does change now? The winner of the next fight is going to be the person who understands the most. Now, part of that is knows the most, but really I think it's more than that. It's understands the most. We have weapons with such precision now and such uh, uh, destructive power, you don't need that many. All you need to do is get them in the right place at the right time. And so it's all going to be about who knows, but not when I talk about what you see from a drone and you see something happen, you say, I know what's going on down there. No, you don't. You see what's going on down there. You don't understand. And so I think success is going to go to the side that understands best, because they're going to know where to do things and how to do things. 
that's going to be the challenge for the future military because how much you have of something uh, is not going to be that much different from the enemies. I mean, people can, producing precision weapons, we're not the only people who can produce drones with Hellfire-like capability now. Other people do it. So everybody's going to be able to blow stuff up. Everybody's going to be able to see stuff. Who can figure it out and then use it in a very careful way? It'll never be as neat and clean as, you know, Buck Rogers' ideas where you'll know everything and you'll just touch at certain points. That's just not the nature of mankind or war. But what I think we've got to do with the technology, it's got to become a great enabler to figuring it out. And so the reason I uh, valued the technology so much was, on one hand standpoint, it let us hear so much. We had a lot of ability to listen. We had an awful lot of ability to see. And we had the ability to inform ourselves as fast as we could and, and inform ourselves across the organization. The enemy was always changing how they fought. And what we did was every day we had a 90-minute video teleconference with the whole command, thousands of people. And someone says, I saw this. This is what I'm seeing. This is a change. It goes out to everybody. Goes, Got it. And you benchmark off that and you change. Where we were weak, and we're still weak in the US, is we don't understand what's happening. If you go to your neighborhood here and you see somebody walk down the street and do something, you sort of know if it's right or wrong, or if that person doesn't belong here. And America's not good at that. We still tend to use the technological. We listen to phones. We look at things. But we don't invest enough to have the person who's walking on the street who knows people who will actually tell you the, the other part of that. And I think that's the great missing gap. Part of that is that walking down the street and talking to people is dangerous. And right. we don't want to fight a dangerous war. Well, so yeah. all, all the incentive is against that. All the incentive is to use the technology in the way you say we shouldn't be using it. It gets to risk. Look at all the controversy we've had over the loss of Ambassador Chris Stevens. Mm. I think he's a hero. I know he was a great ambassador. I know he was doing what he thought was right. He was where he thought he ought to be. It was a risk he took. And I don't think we should be arguing about it. If he'd been there with two companies of Marines supporting him, he'd have never dealt with any Libyans. He, you know, because the Libyans don't want two companies of Marines. And so suddenly, he's not going to be a very good ambassador. I mean, he's there to figure out what's going on and deal with people. So he accepts risk. And instead of us arguing about building castles, what we ought to be doing is we need to produce more Chris Stevens. We need to celebrate him in every college and school. So we have a bunch of young Americans saying, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to take some risk. And I'm willing to, to deal with people on a man-to-man -man level. Because that's where I think the question is, are, are tragedy is we don't have enough of him. We're going to open it for questions in a minute or two. And there are mics here. And if you are interested in asking a question for the general, please just line up in front of the mics. Um, I, I do have, I have one last question before we open it up. One of the other themes that I found myself really uh, loving in the book is your, your infatuation with Burger King. Um, and, 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 and other, no, but in, in a way of, you know, there's a real critique of consumerist culture and American culture and civilian culture, we might call it, and even military culture, because you're talking about it at the bases. Um, there's a, and I'm just wondering, and you've taken some flack for this, in, uh, you know, in saying you're out of touch with the civilian population and things of that. And I'm wondering, um, do you think we need the kind of leadership in this country, in the civilian world, as opposed to just the military world, that takes us away from the consumer culture that you seem that you I think for good reasons have a lot of problems with. Should we be attacking that? Should we should that be a focus, or should we have to let that be? And other and, and the military has to go in another direction. Yeah, I, the short answer is yes. And the background to what Roger's saying is, 
we had Burger Kings opening on all, not all the bases, the big bases. And there were other things. There were coffee shops and all this kind of foolishness. And I said, well, we're spending way too much time and effort on this, and it distracts people. We're here to fight a war and win a war. We're not here to do that. And I got all these people saying, no, you can't, you can't take away the comfort food. I said, well, one, the people in the small bases in the mountains don't have Burger King. So the people who really need the comfort food, I can't get it to them anyway. The second is, who wants to write a letter to the mother of Private Smith, who's killed defending a, a convoy of frozen pizzas coming in? Because, I mean, we have plenty of food, but we're doing all this other stuff. And I also think there's a mindset. You know, some things are hard. And I think what we shouldn't do is say, you know, we're going to file the edges off it. Nothing's going to be hard. We're not going to raise your taxes too much. We're not going to ask you to, to be cold or wet or tired. Yeah, we are going to ask you to do all that. We're going to ask you to do it because it matters. And so if we start by apologizing to people of, you know, we hate to inconvenience you, but if the cause is worth it, people will be inconvenienced. Soldiers didn't complain about it. The complaints I got in Afghanistan were from people in the U.S. saying, you know, you can't do that. And you think, it, do you, I mean, do you think there's a political discourse that you'd like I, I could think, happen here? I, I think there is. I'm a great believer in national service. Walter knows this. Yep. I believe every young American should serve their country, not militarily. I mean, there's a small percentage that will, but I'm talking about in health care, in education, you name it. I think everybody ought to have at least a year of national service of some kind, not so much for the work they get done, although it would be valuable, but for what it does for them. When you contribute to the nation, you feel differently about it. Right. Uh, and also, we also get to know who we get to know. Uh, we get to know the people in our school, in our neighborhood, in our economic strata, in our ethnic background. And one of the great things big efforts like the military do is they do pull everybody together. They stuff them together. And for the rest of your life, whether you go back to your tribe or not, you knew people from a different set of tribes, and you have a different view of it. And I think... I think we need that in America, too. So that's, that's why my passion for national service and more to follow on that. So if you have a question, um, please first give us your name. And secondly, please limit your que one question and very quick, because we have a bunch of people. Um, we'll start here. I can't see, so I'm just um, General McChrystal, uh, thank you very much for coming, and thank you very much for your service. Um, my name is Hunter Stiers. Um, my question is, um, you spoke earlier about commander's intent. and um, versus micromanaging through the, the omnipresent communication that we have in our military. And uh, about the, the trend that's going on about the towards the micromanaging bit. And um, that's kind of been, I mean, that trend is kind of a problem because, you know, we're dealing with a century, we're moving towards a space where we are going to be in a world where communication might be cut off. How, do you think that we're training our troops, I mean, at, whether it's at West Point, or uh, are we building a force that is equipped to deal with that kind of um, cutoff from high command? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're trying to do that. The problem is technology makes that hard. Everybody carries a cell phone now. So if you have to make a decision, you have the ability to call your parents or call your boss or call your teacher. And if they expect you to call them, you will. And if when they call, you know, they give you an answer, you're going to call next time because you've established that habit. And they've established that expectation. 
And so what we've got to do is we've got to realize that although we have that ability to do it, we don't want that to happen. Because very quickly, it, it's, it's not people trying to do this necessarily, it just starts sucking up to you. And when I got to the point where they contacted me, I said, why are you asking me that? That's not my problem, that's your problem. What do you need? Do you need something? But I think you've got to work on it because when uh, Admiral Perry went to open up Japan, I think he sailed away and he was gone two years, and he made the decision there just He's there and he made the decision on the ground. I think this is what the United States wants. If he'd been able to call back, then he probably would have called back and said, you know, who knows? I, I just don't think you'd get as much value out of micromanagement as you will training, as you say. Thank you. Thank you. Over here. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesse Meyerson. Um, you, uh, you, you went earlier, you went through a, a sort of harrowing litany of ethically dubious moments in American military history in order to um, illustrate the, uh, the, the moral gray area of war. And you, you spoke of um, telling subordinates uh, that they had moral leeway to figure out in the moment uh, what was a, a wise decision. Um, and, uh, and yet, on the other hand, um, when you spoke of uh, the nature of the targets that you were um, assigned to, um, you spoke of them as some senior bad guys. And I'm just sort of wondering um, how to reconcile the um, generosity of moral leeway that you um, afford American troops with the, the certitude with which you assign moral value to the opponents. Yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting question because there were various names for the enemy. And some of them have different levels of pejorative meaning. <laughs> if you call somebody a terrorist or, you know, a commie pinko bedwetter, whatever, you know, whatever you want to use for them. Um, for someone like Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, I could use psychopathic killer, murderer, and I'd be right. And yet, for many of the people who supported and worked with him, what I could use is someone who thought that they needed to protect Sunni interests in Iraq. So it's really hard, but typically when you are fighting someone, you want to bend them together because it's really difficult to fight and kill people that you like. So what do we do in every war? We take our enemies, look what we did with the Japanese, look at the World War II, we immediately paint them as something we have to hate. It's hard to get soldiers, so you have this tension constantly. You want them to respect the enemy for their ability, but you also want them to, to need to destroy them. Yet at the same time, you've got to convince them, you know, we're dealing with people here. So the point is you've got to deal with people's behaviors, the enemy behavior. Uh, when you have people who have demonstrated, you know, intent to kill you, efforts to kill civilians and all, then they become enemy combatants. They become uh, authorized, uh, we call it declared hostile in the legal terminology. If someone's declared hostile, then as you come upon them, you have the ability to engage them in, in uh, open combat. But it's, but it's hard, and one of your dangers is, particularly in an area where counterinsurgency or whatever, where the enemy is largely Iraqi, but so are the population, that the danger that people start to, to uh, group things together Improvised explosive devices, which are placed out, are often placed in neighborhoods where the population sees them going in. And yet, one goes off and kills your buddy, and you go, well, if they knew it was there, they are the enemy. That's a bad assumption, because they're frightened by the enemy. The fact they didn't tell you about it could be just that they're frightened. And so, that's what makes the war so hard. That's why you see such frustration. That's why you see 
people, you know, trying to say, uh, we got to take the gloves off and kill all the bad guys. Well, you got to figure out who's really bad. And that's, that takes nuance, and that takes real maturity. Thank you. Uh, Howard, Howard Berkowitz. Uh, you use the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan as an illustration of ethics of a, of a soldier actually executing a prisoner without a trial. Uh, how can we, maybe you could talk to bringing that forward with the use of drones and, and whether we need more legislation and, and, uh, uh, and, and laws dealing with the use of drones, maybe even in the US as well as abroad, when they're not being used in a military capacity, but perhaps to, to, to destroy uh, uh, informants or, or people we think might be, be evil yeah. without a trial. That's a great question. I'm going to talk first kind of internationally, and we talk about the U.S. A drone's just a tool. It's just an unmanned aerial vehicle. It can look at stuff, and it can shoot down. It can do some other things for you. So it's just another piece of technology. What it does, however, is it introduces some new concerns. The first is they were very useful in combat because we could send a raid force on a target, and instead of sending 100 guys, we could send 20 because the drone could tell us what's around the target. They could see for us. So you didn't have to put a picket line of security. You just put the people on the target. And so it was, it was very economical from that standpoint. You also could spend a lot of time figuring things out in the good standpoint. We could put a drone over somebody for days or weeks. And we did that over places. And you know more. In World War II, we would have simply bombed the neighborhood. Now we don't do that. And so from a standpoint, you can learn more. You can understand you can be much more precise, so it's got a positive there. The thing that worries me about drones is it potentially lowers the threshold for use. If you're not putting yourself or your people at risk, the danger is, because if you go through a plan for an opposite, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do this, and the raid force is gonna do it, you always say, what's the risk to the force? What's the chance I'll lose my people or whatever? If that's off the table, my fear is it becomes just a little bit easier to go, well, there's no risk and it doesn't cost much. We could do this. Um, they do great due diligence before they take shots from drones. I can tell you from firsthand, it is, it is impressive how careful they are. At the same time, the perception in the world is, is really a challenge because if we were here today and we heard word that the government of Mexico had done a drone strike in Texas, and they'd taken out a drug dealer who we hated, and they hated, completely right, and that's all they killed, we'd still go, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and we'd, we wouldn't be happy. And people around the world, not just the people in the area where the drone strikes go, people around the world are very uncomfortable with the idea that the United States can go where they want, shoot where they want, and sovereignty's not as respected. There's a certain view of arrogance. In Pakistan, the drone strikes are hated much more in the Punjab than they are in Waziristan, where all the drone strikes have gone. So people who hate them most have never seen one. And it's also shooting against their enemies, but there's this deep well of hatred for them. And so what we need to understand is every time we use a weapon, if it has a certain perception, it's got a cost to it. So I'm not saying don't ever use them. I'm not taking them off the table. I'm saying. We need to understand the perceptions of the people, because at the end of the day, if we kill Joe Bag of Donuts, and he's really bad, but we frustrate an entire population and make them hate us, 
I'm argue we probably didn't get, we didn't make progress on that day. This is a really, this is graduate level ethics, it's graduate level strategy, but now that we have these tools, the problem is you had the chance to, to get things, to create yourself great pain if you don't think them through really carefully. In the US, I think, I mean, it's a whole other level too, because <laughs> there's other levels of legality and whatnot that, that I've never really considered, so I can't opine on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Wolf. I'm a docent here. I don't often get to say this, but General, thank you for your service to our country. You're kind, sir. Thank you. The question is, one word we have not heard today is Iran. We all know the stakes. We all know the difficulties and the sure. problems. I'd like to hear your views on what U.S. policy should be. Yes, sir. Um, first off, I view the Iranian nuclear issue as one of what I talked about in the region. The region's going to be difficult whether Iran gets nuclear capability or not. And they are a big player in, in what's going to be difficult. Um, I personally hope that Iran does not get a nuclear weapon. That said, there are 80 million Iranians, and I would suspect that most Iranians, if you polled them, would say, we would like to have a nuclear weapon. Simply because, why not? Why should you have it, and we shouldn't have it? And it's a pretty convincing argument. And we say, well, President Ahmadinejad is not a trustworthy guy and, and whatnot. But they'll, of course, come back with the knee jerk that says, you're the only people who've ever dropped one. Um, so I think we've got to understand viscerally, if we take action against Iran's nuclear program, we are not going against President Ahmadinejad and the Supreme Leader. We're going against the nation of Iran. And they are going to respond in a way that, that I believe is going to feel like they're at war. I don't think it's going to be the Osirak reactor where the Israelis bombed Iraq's nuclear program in 1981 and the Iraqis just said, okay, we'll stop. I don't think that'll happen. So we need to understand this is a big deal. On the other hand, um, the Israelis particularly, but also the Saudis and other people in the region, they have a reason to fear Iran. And they have a reason to believe that a nuclear Iran is just that much more dangerous. Um, I'm supportive of the president's policy to try to use sanctions, try to use every other tool we can to convince them in their interests. But there's an awful lot of scar tissue built up over the last 40 years, really since 1953 when Mossadegh was overthrown with the help of the US and, and the British intelligence services. So the Iranian people, there's a lot of scar tissue, but they also have a lot of internal divisiveness. So when I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic that internally in Iran you'll have these forces which will move them towards a policy that says it's not in their interests. The rest of the time, and it's a minority of the time, I'm afraid that the Iranians at a very minimum will continue hard on a nuclear power capability with the ability to ramp that into a weapons program uh, on fairly short notice. Uh, I don't see anything in their policy that indicates that they won't do that. I don't, I don't see why I would believe um, that, that they'll change that policy right now. So I'm, I'm afraid we're on a collision course with some kind of reckoning with uh, Iran. And so I, I think that's part of this next 10 to 20 years. It may not be quite as quick as we thought. It may not be in six or eight months. It may be much longer than that. But I, but I think that unless something changes, like the rise of the Green Party again, I think we have to assume that's very, very likely. Yes. 
Um, my name is Helen Papoulias. Uh, thank you, General. This was a fascinating discussion. Mine is a very topical question. I was very interested and perplexed when yesterday I heard that uh, President Karzai made the statement that the United States is in cahoots with the Taliban. And I just wondered, given your amazing and extensive knowledge of, of what's going on in the country, what do you make of this political weird statement that he made? Yeah, that was out there, I'll, I'll first tell you. Um, <laughs> I think the first thing to do is to put it in uh, context. Mm -hmm. President Karzai is a national leader who thinks about Afghanistan, and he's a politician. He is absolutely playing to his internal Afghan mm -hmm. constituency. And so I think what he's trying to communicate is that there is a group of people, and I don't think he means cahoots from the standpoint of you know, actually allied together. I think he thinks that we both get some value out of us staying and out of the Taliban creating this thing. Uh, so he could mean it as simply as, you guys like fighting the Taliban, and the Taliban like fighting, and therefore you guys, you know, you're doing this because that's what you do, and we are paying the price for it. Um, the, unfortunately, he is a president. When he gets out and he makes these things, and, and you read them at first, you go, wow, that's, you know, that's just not helpful. Uh, <laughs> that's about the best. I mean, I like President Karzai a lot, and I've got a lot of time for it, but, but he doesn't do Western press very well, um, in, in my view. Thank you. I know we're not in cahoots, if that's the question. I've, I know that. <laughs> no, I was just thinking, think what's in, the politics behind it? Is he trying to have, alienate us and... Uh, no, he's trying to... He, he's thinking post-2014. Yeah. We, he sees us... We've said we're leaving. Right. And if he sees we're gone, he's, he's trying to chart a course that's best for 2014. That's my take. Last question, please keep it as quick as possible. Sorry. Okay. Um, my name is Ethan Rosen. Um, so there's an article published in Foreign Policy recently. I think it was an excerpt of a book by, I don't remember the name, sorry. Um, but the central theme of it was that the Obama administration, um, their biggest failure uh, when they came into Afghanistan was that they put too much emphasis on the military rather than putting emphasis on diplomacy in the State Department. So my question to you is, as someone who is in the military, do you believe that there was too much emphasis put on your work? And then going forward, when you talk about a redrawing of the Middle East, how much emphasis do you think, do you foresee we're going to put on the military versus the diplomatic solutions? Yeah, I, the short answer is there has been too much emphasis on the military for the last 10 years. And part of that's because the military is there, got a lot of people, got a lot of stuff. And we started after 9-11 with what looked like a military problem, which was really not a military problem, but there was a, a desire to do that. The other parts of the government, Department of State, USAID, and other part, they need to strengthen themselves, be strengthened budget-wise, and strengthen themselves to play a bigger role. I think they know that, but, but that's got to happen. The, uh, the Obama administration had an interesting problem because they had come into office, Iraq's the bad war, Afghanistan's the good war, and suddenly they're, they're in office and they find out that Afghanistan's going south really quickly, and so you can say, well, what we'd like to do is handle this diplomatically. The problem was when I took over in the summer of 2009, you could want to handle it diplomatically, but the house is on fire. Unless you get better security, it was going to be irrelevant. There wasn't going to be anything to talk about. So we had, and so President Obama, from the day he took over, 
gets hit with military requests for additional forces, not because the military wants to do that, but because the situation's getting worse and the only way you can stabilize it is with enough force to do counterinsurgency while you build up the, uh, the Afghan forces. That puts you in that terrible position of you don't want to do more war, but if you don't do it, then you're not going to have enough stability to do anything else. There's no place for diplomacy unless you get enough security, as Walter said, to move forward. So I think my guess is this administration was very frustrated by getting hit with that challenge. Who wouldn't be? Even the military was, because we'd been there eight years, and yet the situation was worse. And so what we had to do, the way I viewed it, was we had to put a wet blanket on this fire for a period of time while we you know, got stopped the, Af the uh, Afghan Taliban's momentum and whatnot, which was significant. But once you do that, or while you do that, you got to start getting a lot better at your diplomacy, a lot better at building their political infrastructure. And I think that's the harder of the two challenges. And that's what I think, we, we've made some progress, but that's what we've struggled on. So I, I think it's a fair point, but you have to be careful not to oversimplify it. Thank you. So I think we should all thank General McChrystal. Oh, thank you.